Hey, everybody. You're listening to the Phillips Life Group Podcast. Thank you for tuning in today. These are lessons from a young couple's Sunday morning life group at Bellevue Baptist Church. My name is Chris Phillips, your host and teacher for our life group. And our young couple's life group consists of engaged, newlywed, or new parent couples in their 20s and early 30s. We'd love to have you join us on a Sunday morning at 11 a.m. if you can. But if you can't, thank you for listening today. You can follow me on Twitter at ChrisUT or check us out on Facebook at Phillips Life Group. Thanks so much, and I hope you enjoy the lesson. Man, anybody that does that doesn't have a logical mind, and they don't know what they're doing. Okay, I ask. I'm not questioning Russell Moore. I mean, he's a pretty intelligent guy. He is running the ERLC. God's appointed man for that position. He is fairly smart, you know, as an academic professor. I am not that intelligent, so I'm not going to debate Russell Moore at all. But, I, I mean, I would never sit there and say, I mean, that, that's basically a stupid way to approach it because they don't have any logic if that's the way they vote. Because Hillary's going to appoint these people, and this person's going to appoint these people, and logic would say vote for the lesser two evils so that this person doesn't appoint these people in this position. Okay, so that's logic, right? That is kind of a kooky answer to just say, hey, I'm going to vote for uh, Maria Thomas in this election this year because I'm not voting for Hillary or Trump. I'm writing it in. It's kind of illogical for them to do that, right? Go ahead, Wayne. I'm still running. <laughs> Wayne, right Wayne says, please, please write him in. It is on Facebook right here. So, so all I'm saying is that was what logic says to make sure you vote for one because of this. That's what the world says, right? I don't care what the world says. I care what this says. I, I use it as another example. And I told him, I said, well, here, let me ask you a question. I said, David and Saul. When you look at the story of David and Saul, David was God's anointed king during the time when Saul was anointed as king, right? So here you are. You have David, clearly a better leader. Clearly. Everybody knows that David's a better leader. He's got his followers. He's got all these people. Have you ever been under the authority of someone that you thought just wasn't as good a leader as they could be or maybe possibly you? I mean, I have. It's okay. Don't throw stones. And and so David was in that position, right? He was clearly the better leader than Saul. And as a matter of fact, Saul was what? What was he trying to do today? Kill him. Kill him. Okay, so logic would say that David had every right to do what? Kill him back. Kill Saul. Man, he's coming after you. He's coming to get you. You know, blah, 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 you're the better leader. You have all these followers. You're God's anointed man. But what did David say? David said, I am not touching him because he's God's anointed man. If God doesn't want him there, God will remove him from death. Had his spear, right, in the cave, in the tent, all these other places. He had every opportunity. The world would look at David and tell him he was just, for lack of a better way of putting it, an idiot. Get yours, man. He's after you. Do it. But David said, it's not about me, and it's not about worldly logic. It's about God's anointing and God's timing and what God wants to happen, right? It's the same thing in all of this. When we look at these obstacles, and obstacles would say, hey, get in the Word of God, pray, seek the Lord's face. Don't make this decision without God doing this. Don't do this without God telling you what to do. Don't go into this job. Don't go into this career. Don't decide to have kids. Don't do all of these things. Wait on God to answer your prayers and thoughts. The world says what? Dude, whatever. Just do what you got to do. Get yours. Remember? Well, what bothers me is right after the election, when it's not what most Christians' choice is, they just start saying it's God's anointed leader. 
mention that before the election? Not at all. Yeah. Brian? Go ahead, Mike. Um, well, not to mention, when we, what we focus, like you said, this is the person you were talking to, is so focused on what the future holds if this, what if this, if this happens, this will happen, if this happens, this will happen. We don't know that. Yeah. If we choose based upon our conscience and yet someone still gets elected that we think may not be the best decision, nothing says that God can't intervene and change that person's heart. Yeah. Here's the idea. How many of those Christians have prayed for God to move the heart of Obama like channels of water, like the Proverbs tell us? God, appoint your leaders, move their hearts like channels of water, any direction that you want. Are we saying that God can't change the heart of any of those people? It's not a really powerful God that we serve, we do. But now let's go back to us. Let's go back to our Jericho, whatever our Jericho is, the obstacle that we're in. What is your Jericho? That worldly opinion, worldly thought says do this, but God's word and the Holy Spirit says do this, right? We have that. I, I don't care where you are. I don't care where you've been. You've got that. Worldly wisdom says to do this, but God says to do this. And if you don't have that, I'll just venture to say that you probably haven't included God in that process. You've probably just gone with the worldly wisdom. And so you need to think about those things. Uh, our modern day blowing of trumpets and doing those things is really more a reality than we think if we're living according to God's word, right? Maybe the TV that we watch or the TV that we don't watch or the music we listen to or don't listen to or the jobs we take or don't take. Uh, modesty in clothing versus non-modesty in clothing, all those sorts of things. The world would say, oh man, that's so old school and legalistic. God's word would say this, right? We all have that. We all make these decisions on a daily basis. We maybe just don't think about it in those terms. You see, God's instructions to Joshua about taking Jericho contain no reference to a military strategy, but rather indicate that it is essentially to be a ritual ceremony. Well, why is this ceremony? God's already conquered it, right? God was giving the city to Joshua and the Israelites. He did not require their plans or their strategy. The use there of the past tense delivered shows that while the event had not happened, the outcome was decided by the Lord. Prayer can reflect this type of confidence in God. We've got to seek the Lord in the decisions that we're making, no matter what they are, no matter where they are, or no matter what worldly logic says to do. We absolutely have to, do, to be in there. Wayne, will you read uh, Joshua 6, 6 through 11? I know, right? I'm trying to make people use Bibles and things. It's in the Old Testament. <laughs> Which one's six through what? Six through 11. Okay. Joshua 6, 6 through 11? Yeah. Okay. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priest and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram swords before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua commanded, the people, the seven, the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant, the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard were walking after the ark. While the trumpets blew continually, but Joshua commanded the people, You shall not make a shout or make a, your voice heard 
neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout, and then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. How did Joshua's instructions compare to God's instructions? Do we see any similarities, any differences? So when God tells us to do something, we should probably follow all that God tells us to do? Hmm, that's weird. Because a lot of times we want to throw in things like, but, or I'll do this, but can I just add this? What if I do this and then just take away this, right? What's adding to Scripture called? Does anybody know? Legalism. What's taking away from Scripture called? Liberalism. Okay, so you have liberalism, you have legalism. When we take away from Scripture, that's being very liberal with Scripture. When we add to Scripture and say that you must wear a suit and tie and all these sorts of things to church or you can't worship God, that's adding to Scripture. When we say you've got to do all of these things and do this and do that and adding to the Word and doing all that kind of stuff, that's adding to Scripture. It's called legalism. Taking away, liberalism, adding to, legalism. We can't do either. We need to be aware. Right with what the Word of God says. God lays on your heart something to do. Don't give him any ifs, ands, or buts, or maybes, or what ifs. Just do it. Just absolutely do it. There's only one difference between what Joshua said to his people and what God told Joshua. And that was what to do with the Ark of the Covenant. Where did Joshua put the Ark of the Covenant? Out front. Joshua put the Ark of the Covenant out front. Said, hey, do this with the Ark of the Covenant. Put it out front. Why? Why would he do something like that? They're leading with God the Holy Spirit. Everything they've done up to that point has been been following God, following Him in cloud and pillar, stopping where He stops, going when He goes. Yeah. So if I have the Ark of the Covenant out in front of me, that's probably a great reminder of who's leading me. Like Nathan said, the Holy Spirit. Remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about these uh, these types of stones that we have in our lives, these things that we can think about and walk through as we're walking through life to remind us of who's in charge. Those stones, those things that we do, they're vastly important to our walk. We've got to look at them and say, okay, God is leading this charge. God is leading my life. Why do I wake up in the morning and read my Bible first thing? So I can rid myself the whole rest of the day. There's no other real reason. I just, I need that. I don't have the power and authority to wake up and and do anything, but I'll forget about it. I, I can't read at the end of the day because by the end of the day, I'm like, oh man, I wish I would have done all this today. And then I'll sleep on it and I won't do anything else. Reading the Word of God first and foremost in the beginning of the day helps me set my mind right on who's in charge of my day. Who is in control of my day? Who's planning my day before I even thought about planning it? Susan? And, and to, to that point, you know, the verse 12 says in one sentence, it says, And Joshua rose early in the morning. You know, in this, the book of Joshua has a lot, several times. Got up in the morning. Got up in the morning. You know, I'm not saying that he had to get up in the morning. I am. Before, I'm just kidding. Before he, yeah, but you know. <laughs> but before he even started, he's saying early in the morning. He doesn't say what did he do when he got up in the morning. Yeah. Hey Lord, I'm following your command. I'm sure that's what he did. Yeah. I'm doing this. Yeah. I'm following you, and I'm going to put the ark out in front of everybody else so that exactly. they know where we're going. Right. Now, here's another thing. <laughs> Why do you think Joshua told everybody to be silent before the final shout? 
it's much more impactful if there's silence before the shell. Yeah. Yeah. Contemplate what we were told is about to happen. Yeah. And I would have been there sitting there, man, I want to see this. And then I've also, the other side of me saying, I sure hope it happens that way. Yeah. Now, we're saying all this. There's nothing in Scripture that reveals why he did it. I, I think it's a, an act in reverence of prayer, yeah. too. Yeah. To stop and pause and be silent before I go into whatever it is I'm about to do. Because there's something power about silence, right? There's something really powerful about silence. And Brother Steve today's Pentecost, and Brother Steve was very big on the Holy Spirit. You know, when you have that silence and just being still and knowing that God is there and present, being still before you make a decision, before you do something, before you go into work, I wonder how often our work day would be a little bit better if we stopped and paused in the car before we ever donned the doors of the workplace and just prayed to the Lord to bathe that day with his leading. But man, we don't do that. You know, we've just listened to sports radio. We've just listened to podcasts. We've just done whatever. We just yelled at the car next to us because they cut us off. And then we're running a little bit late probably because the kids weren't ready or because I couldn't get out of bed or because whatever else. And so we just run into the workplace and then we just go and we just sit down and we have 15 emails already and we have three meetings that we forgot about. We have all this other stuff and then we go, why didn't my day go like I want it to go? That's probably because I never included God in my day whatsoever. Because I woke up late and I didn't get in the Word of God. I didn't put the ark out in front of me before I went wherever it was. And so I just went about my day without including the Lord. Maybe I'll get to him at lunch. Maybe I'll get to him somewhere else. Maybe, and hopefully, God, sometime today I'll get some time to get alone with you. And then our day just goes all just, it's wrought with destruction. And then we come home and we're mad. And now we take it out on our husband, our wife, our kids, whatever else. At the end of the day, we hit the bed and we go, today was terrible. I hated it. I didn't like any bit of it. I'm just wondering how different that could have been if we would have just started our day with the ark out in front. If we had just started our work day at work with the ark out in front. And I just think that Joshua led his people to stop and to pause before knowing the final thing that God was going to do had already done in tearing down those walls. And said, let's seek the Lord. Let's praise his name for what he's about to do. Right? What if we went with a high anticipation of how God was going to move in our work every day? When I go to work, that hey, God is going to move here today. And we just stop and pause and say, hey, God, I know that you put me in this job. I know that you did that so that I could honor and glorify you. Thank you for the work that you were going to do in and through me today in this job place in my marriage, with my kids, wherever it may be. Mohan, read uh, verses 12 through 21 for me. Yeah. We're in Joshua. I won't call on anybody else after this. <laughs> but you can still open it. Actually, I will. Yeah, 12 through 21. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests drank the seven trumpets of the Lord, before the ark of the Lord walked on. And they blew the trumpets continually. And then armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the, trumpet, while the, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. 
so they did, did that for six days. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the, at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that was that is within it shall be de devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her and her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom, he sent, whom, whom we sent. But you keep yourselves, but you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted, then they devoted all the city to the destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, to the edge of the sword. How do you think the soldiers felt as they marched around in silence? Soldiers, by the way, soldiers, not just random people. Soldiers marched away, marched around in silence. Yeah, like we look pretty foolish right now, right? You ever done that? You ever been sitting out like Panera, Starbucks, and just thought, you know, somebody's probably looking at me. It's okay. You can admit that you thought that one time when you were reading your Bible in public. Has anybody ever done that? Read their Bible in public and just thought, oh, I bet these people are judging me right now. I kind of feel like Joshua took ways to kind of get within their minds of, alright, y'all are going to go in front and behind the ark with the priest blowing. These are the most important things. Y'all yeah. are to protect them. So y'all may not be marching to war, but you have a purpose for what you're doing and what you're not just mar marching back with the other everyone else behind it. You're still protecting it just in case. So Joshua gave marching orders that probably helped them feel a little bit better about what they're doing. Yeah. You guys ever received marching orders from church? It says we probably should be out reading doing those sorts of things, not feeling foolish, sharing the gospel, evangelizing, reading, praying, doing those sorts of things. Anybody ever got those marching? Anybody ever heard that at church? In this life group? Right? If you, I, I question what church you've been to. If you, clearly you have not been here for a while or you've been checked out the entire time. Right? We've received our marching orders. We've said what it's going to do, yet we still feel foolish. Right? Come on, let's be honest. Have you ever, I mean, just have you ever been reading or talking or, or mentioning Verses or what God's done to you and just felt a little awkward to people that you don't know are wholly devoted like we are here in this room. It's okay, like I have. Sometimes I feel awkward with some guys on staff, you know, like I should bring this back to the Lord. It's supposed to be a given. You know, so you're like, oh, okay, should I should I give the Jesus answer here, you know, or what do I need to do? And um, yeah, it's okay. But but we've been given our marching orders, but yet we still feel foolish sometimes by doing those sorts of things, even though we know we've been given our marching orders and we know that God's commanded it. Because not only did Joshua command them, but it's pretty apparent at this point that Joshua follows who in his commands. His people knew that. His people knew he was God's anointed leader there because he followed God's commands completely. And so what we've got to remember is that even though we may walk around feeling foolish about our you know, situation, whatever it may be, reading, praying, going to the group, going to whatever it may be, talking about those sorts of things. We've been given that marching order. We've been given that marching order by God, 
and we've been given that marching order by our spiritual authorities and leaders and those sorts of things. And so we shouldn't feel foolish doing it. We should just feel confident that God's going to move in it. We should know that God's already delivered. God's already conquered. God's already done this because this is what's been commanded to do, right? Okay, um, one more person. Who wants to read 22 through 27? Go for it. Fair plot. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all that belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all that belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day, because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. So here in this final piece, what do we see? God what? Keeps his promises. When God says it, it's as good as written in gold. It's as good as written. Bank on it. This word says it, you bank on it. You absolutely bank on it. There's no movement from it. There's no anything else. I would venture to say that if you ever think that something was said in here and it didn't happen the way you thought it was going to be, you're probably mistaken as to what you thought was happening or you didn't include God in the first place. The one thing we see throughout all of Scripture is that God is what? Faithful. God doesn't waver. He doesn't change His mind in His promises to us. He doesn't change any of those things. Therefore, it goes back to that prayer. Why would I not include God in the decisions that I make? If God answers this decision and clearly tells me through prayer and fasting, why would I not want to hold on to that? God doesn't contradict himself. He's not going to tell you something one day and then go and tell you something else later on. He's just not going to do it. So why would I not seek the Lord in that decision? Have you ever made a decision that you regretted because you knew you didn't seek the Lord in it? Raise your hand. Okay? So I'm not the only one. Do you ever wish you would have gone back and just asked the Lord at first, Hey, God, what do you think about this? Because you know the way he was going to answer it. And that you just would have been obedient to what he said. You probably wouldn't have gone through all of those sorts of things. Right? Now, like Maverick pointed out earlier, we can use those things for God's good. Right? We use those learning experiences. We call it staining our testimony and, you know, whatever it may be. We call it those, those types of experiences. God still used it for his good because what was meant for evil, God does what? Use it for good. Who do we see that with? Joseph. Joseph right? And so in this whole process of making decisions and challenges and circumstances and jobs and kids and marriage and family and everything that you guys are going through, why wouldn't you seek the Lord first to gain his decision, his answer, his word in all that we're seeking, right? 
So what I'm going to do, I'm going to read out small groups. We'll break out. Three things. Be honest. What are your Jerichos? What are your walls? What are your unscalable walls? Share. How can you encourage people through their Jericho? Okay? We're sharing what our Jerichos are. What can you look at somebody and say, hey, I want to encourage you about this. How can you encourage people through their Jerichos? And then how should you seek God when it comes to his promises? Because that's really hard. We always say that God's faithful, right? Anybody, oh, God is faithful. What does that mean? I just said it. We just thought, what does that mean? How does that play out into our everyday lives as husbands, wives, mothers, fathers, coworkers, you name it? How does it come out when you say, hey, how should you seek God when it comes to his promises? Okay? I'll read out uh, some small groups. These are going to change. So you've got two emails. So we, uh, uh, Richard and, and those guys went out, and I am grateful uh, that they uh, replicated out. That's God's model for small groups is replication. God's model for small groups is not big, big, 100-member life groups. It's just not. That's called a what? Church. Church, you know. And so small groups, on average, they'll say the best small groups and life groups for relationships to transform and for life to transform in them are between 12 and 29. That's like the ideal number, right? We've even looked at some of our, what we call retention rates for guests. So when guests come to church uh, at Bellevue and they go to a life group, which life groups are retaining guests the best? Okay. So which ones are really, those people are going, I'm going to stay here and I like it. The best ones uh, if you had to pick between 0 to 12, 12 to 29, and 29 and higher, which life group size do you think retains the guests the highest? 12 to 29, every single time. No, astronomically higher. Why is that? Same reason why people shy away from coming to large churches. Right? You're real great relationships that last. And it's not too big where you don't get to know the people. Too small where you're put in front, you have to take a large responsibility. If I am coming into a life group, I'm probably a little bit more alongside of my journey, right? I'm not just trying church for the first time and doing those sorts of things. I'm trying to get connected on a deeper level, right? Can I really get connected on a deeper level with 60 people in the room? No, right? You probably have a better chance of connecting at a deeper level in sanctuary with the person sitting right next to you or in front of you maybe than that, okay? And, and so anyway, so all that to be said, that I, that's the model. That's Christ's model is replication, small group, and doing those things. I have not led very effectively in that uh, over the past three or four years. I really haven't. I haven't done a good job of that. Uh, busyness, um, people leaving. You know, I mean, we had Mark and Ivan and Blake and Richard twice and, you know, all these sorts of things leaving. And, and so I, I personally have to do a better job of that. Because here's the deal. Um, when you look at a life group structure and all these sorts of things, one, life groups were brought into the Southern Baptist Convention back in the early 1900s as an outreach tool. That They were created solely as an outreach tool. Not a come, sit and soak, grow deeper with a bunch of people I'm walking through life with, but as an outreach tool for the church. Now, we've kind of flipped that model. Outreach tools are big events, programs, and sanctuary. That's not biblical, Right? We are the ones that should be inviting people into this setting in here. This should be our outreach for the church is getting them into fellowship, into this area, into a smaller walk to be faithful and to go through transparent walk of life with people, right? So we've kind of changed that model and everything else. Uh, that's, a, that's all churches, not just Bellevue. Um, a lot of people have done that. But the fact of the matter is we've got to get back to absolutely doing the biblical model for what small groups is about. It's about 
uh, replicating. It's about training and developing leaders. It's about building up the body of Christ for unity. You know what Ephesians 4 says? I've preached about it time and time. I'm here again. I, if, if I was going to get a tattoo on my back somewhere, it would be Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. I'm not doing that anytime soon, so don't worry about it. Um, but we are to train up the leaders. We are to equip the saints for the work of ministry so that then we have maturity and unity in the faith. Do you know how unity comes within the body of Christ? Training and developing new leaders. Leading, serving, literally serving God through leading is where our maturity comes. It says that maturity comes through ministry for our walk with Christ. You know where I grew the fastest in my walk with the Lord? So my guess, where did I, how did I grow the fastest in, ser- in walking with the Lord? Serving leading. That's where God really began to lay and impress upon my heart that I need to be doing more. Not just sitting and chilling and doing nothing. I started growing more as I started leading and serving God through that. Through ministry, I mature, right? And then we bring unity and then we do all those sorts of things. And so, um, one, you got an email. Uh, first survey monkey is just, a, hey, what, what is Life Group about for you? What's good? What's bad? All those sorts of things. Because I think this is a great time. We launched out uh, Richard and four other couples, and uh, we have one or two other that, because of life stage, they're thinking about doing that. So we've you know, got some people that are doing that. It's a great time to reevaluate. Anybody like reevaluating? I'm a big evaluating guy. Like, I love to evaluate. I think every day I should probably say, hey, Lord, how did I honor and glorify you today? How can I do it better tomorrow? I think if we're not evaluating properly, we're just going to get stuck in the same rut that we're doing, Right? So anyways, so uh, email, first email went out. Answer that. Answer it honestly. That one is completely anonymous, right? What do you like? What do you not like? What would you like to see more of? What does life group mean to you? What is all this? Okay, please take that. Second one is about leadership. Um, So I challenged our adult leaders. We had 13 leadership positions in adult life groups, 13. We just said that the best life groups that are the most effective are between what numbers? 12 and 29, and we have how many leaders? 13. 13. Math is not right, okay? So one of the things that we're doing across the church is reevaluating leaders and all these sorts of things. What does it mean? What types of leaderships do we need? Do we need the assistant to the assistant to the assistant leader for this part, you know, whatever it may be? So we're reevaluating all of those sorts of things. Now, the second email, are you interested in leading? The reason I do this today is because we have a leadership meeting next Sunday with Brother Steve in the sanctuary. It's a big kind of all-leaders meeting type deal. Um, if you're interested in leading, check yes on that. If you're not, check no, and that's perfectly fine. Nobody is saying that. I put four categories essentially on there. In reach. Does anybody know what in reach is? Hey, what? Why aren't you here? <laughs> in the church, stuff dealing with the church, recreation, class stuff. That's our, we do the life group events every other two months and then the yeah. big events where it's just our small group. So we have big, in reach is reach, giving compassionate care to those at Bellevue. We have people here. Right? Just to use our mission and vision language. Giving compassionate care to those at Bellevue is in reach. What's outreach? Bellevue loves Memphis. Right. Outreach is Bellevue loves Memphis. A little bit of missions too. The outreach is reaching out to people to do what? Bring them in. People that are not involved. People that are coming to Bellevue and checking, I'd like to be involved. Please get me involved. It's picking up the phone saying, hey, I see that you checked that you wanted to be reached. Would you like to come to my life group? 
It's really hard, challenging. I know it's tough. That's one of those things. That's weird. That's kooky. Nobody, somebody calls me and asks me to come to their church. I'm not doing that. That's weird. Word of God says it, right? Don't argue with me. Outreach is reaching out to those who draw men, okay? We have social stuff that we all need help with. I'm, I'm going to change a philosophy on that uh, with our social things for just four times a year. Um, but we also have uh, social things if you want to help and be on that team that does it. And then we have missions. We've got to get better at doing Bellevue Loves missions as a class. We, we honestly do. That's the, the, the vision statement that God has laid on our church is what? Does anybody know? To be a catalyst for where? Memphis and beyond. Bellevue Loves Memphis is the heartbeat of that. Do you know that uh, Lifeway did research back in 2006 about Bellevue in the city of Memphis and what the city of Memphis thought about Bellevue? And it was awful. It was awful. It was big church, lots of money, people that don't care about the city, only worried about their little compound. Now, I thought that. Okay, so you're looking at a guy that's now on staff that hated Bellevue, didn't like it, didn't want to come here, told my wife we weren't coming here until she drove us here, <laughs> right? So I, for those that don't know my story, we were not going to come here. I knew people that grew up going to Bellevue for the wrong reasons. Yeah, I go to Bellevue. Ha-ha, where do you go to church? You know, not the right reasons, and that really just rubbed me the wrong way. Y'all know I'm a little bit of an against-the-grain type guy anyways. Uh, we're driving on a Sunday morning. We had tried about 10 other churches around here that we just didn't feel comfortable with. Uh, Libby was driving. She had always asked what this big campus was over here because she's not from here, didn't know. Is that a college? What is it? You know, and so we get going, and Libby's driving. I had no plan that day for where we were going because I'm, I'm just out of places to go to. So where do you think we ended up? Here. What do you think we loved? Bellevue. Mark Blair was being introduced to the congregation that day. He was Libby's worship leader and our worship leader at First Baptist Concord. I don't find that a coincidence. Steve was talking about things about sports. I don't find that a coincidence. We were like, all right, we're in. Let's do it, you know, and loved it ever since. But that was my perception. And so Bellevue has done a lot to rid that with Bellevue Loves Memphis. We are loved in the city. I mean, you go out and do these projects, and people absolutely rave about the work that Memphis, uh, Bellevue is doing in the city of Memphis. It's because God's in our heart, and we are not involved in like that like we need to be in our life group. We're not, and so we got to do better there. So missions is an area there. Uh, and then teaching. Okay, so what if I get hit by a truck tomorrow? What's going to happen in this life group? Anybody know anybody that's died before their time? Right, what if I get cancer? What, what if I get something else? I'm, I'm doing way too much. It's my fault. Like, I'm, I'm raising, I'm pointing fingers back at me, okay? So that, I'm not saying this. We have got to have more people that God has laid on their heart to teach and lead in those areas. It's not hard. When you use God's word, it's actually really easy. When I start to get my stuff in it is when it makes it real hard. But I've got to do a better job of raising up a crop of people that desire and God's using to teach. Because, again, what's the model? Let's go back to the very beginning. The model is to replicate out, right? How do you replicate from nothing? Okay, so I've got to do a better job of that. So you get a survey about serving there. If you want to serve in any of those areas, put your name. If you don't and you are not in that stage of life right now, it's okay. I'm telling you that. I'm giving you that freedom. I'm not adding things to Scripture that say you have to do this, that, and the other. I'm just making the opportunity available. This is the time for us to evaluate and do that, okay? All right, so for uh, just sake of time, here's what we're going to do. One group, two groups, three groups. Can we do that? That's easy enough? 
Can we do that for today? And then we'll send out everything too based on it. Can I pray? And then we'll wrap up. Father, you're good to us. Lord, I thank you for these men and women. I thank you that, oh man, you have conquered every situation we've encountered already. God, you are in control of it. Our hope rests not in circumstance. Our hope rests not in decisions that we think we can make, but our hope rests in you. Our joy should rest in you. God, our everything should rest in you. I pray, Jesus, that you will let us overcome these Jerichos in our life by just wholly resting on you. And I pray that the future Jerichos that come, Lord, are bathed in prayer, rooted in prayer, and your answer, God, so that we know we can attack it head on, knowing that you are in full control because we have not put in our decision, Lord, and ask you to bless it. God, I love you. I praise you and I thank you. It's in your name I pray. Amen.